HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Jake Delion, founder and CEO of Phila Manila, the company bringing next-gen Filipino flavors to consumers across the U.S. A blend of influences from China, India, and Spain, Filipino cuisine is growing at a clip in homes across America and yet remains largely unrepresented in the grocery aisle. Phila is here to change that and has already seen tremendous success on Amazon and in retailers like Fresh Time and Whole Foods Market. Their two back-to-back Nexty Awards and Pitch Slam Home Run at Expo East are a testament to the momentum of this killer brand. And Jake, I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome. I'm so excited to be here as well. Thanks, Allie. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like you're just, um, I don't know, you're one of those people I don't know, but I can kind of like feel you, you know, (laughs) you're just, you're, you're positive and you're, you're cranking and you're out there just pitching and slamming and it's awesome. Um, (laughs) And I, you know, want to hear all about sort of the beginning um, of, you know, Phila. And I know that it started during lockdown, which is amazing because it seems like you've had a lot of success just, you know, in these couple of years. But I also know that you have a CPG background. So I'm curious about what you were doing, you know, sort of lessons that you clocked in, before you launched your own thing and um, how it all kind of happened. So take me back as far as you want to go and um, start there. Yeah, I mean, we'll go all the way back. So, you know, I'll say that I happen to be a first-generation Filipino-American immigrant, uh, which means I was born in the Philippines. And my opening joke is that I was raised in the exotic land of New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, food was always natural and kind of an important part of my life since day one. My earliest memories was just helping my grandmother and my mother make Filipino delicacies in our kitchen. 
Uh, we were an immigrant family, so we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So any way we can get extra revenue into the family was important, right? So we would sell these delicacies to our friends and family. Mm-hmm. And this is like another way we would make ends meet and just another way for us to kind of associate food with love. Yeah. So this is a question that I ask um, a lot because... You know, I've spoken to a lot of incredible founders and, you know, they're bringing sort of like the flavors and the recipes from, you know, other cuisines to, you know, American consumers. And sometimes there's a when I was growing up, I just wanted to eat Lunchables because that felt, quote unquote, you know, like American. And then some um, founders talk about how what what made them really feel comfortable and good was sort of like their you know the cuisine that their parents ate you know from in in the countries where they were originally from. So how did that breakdown work for you? Just you know in terms of that otherness and that comfort food and that sort of you know American quote unquote you know kind of um you know assimilation I guess is the question yeah totally it was funny so growing up you know obviously we had a lot of that Filipino comfort food that home cooking in the house right I mean Mm -hmm. everything from breakfast you know we would have some Filipino style breakfast maybe once in a while some cereal Mm -hmm. and usually when we went home for dinner like it would be either my mom my dad or my grandparents like they would make their own amazing Filipino dishes recipes yeah you know that said you know we were still raised quite American, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Like, so when you went to school, you know, sometimes our lunch would be whatever was at the cafeteria. We would have pizza, we have sandwiches. Um, you know, when you go on field trips, you would have a Lunchable. So it wasn't right. all that different, I'd say, compared to the rest of, you know, the other kids in New Jersey when it came to what was happening in school. So, you know, I never brought like Filipino food to school or anything like right. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think part of it was just because, I mean, like, uh, to be honest, a little bit, part of it was a little bit of embarrassment. It was like, yeah. I, you know, I, we have like kind of strange food for the other kids. We don't want to embarrass ourselves going to high school or middle school. But, you know, the other side of it too is like, you know, I eat this stuff all the time. I, I mean, I like variety right. as well. So I don't mind eating Filipino food at parties on the weekend and at home. And then maybe during uh, the weekday at school. like A bologna I'm, I'm sandwich. Cool pizza, <laughs> pizza and chocolate milk. I'm still right. cool with Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's just, you know, it's one of those, you know, there's so much discussion around, you know, whether or not there is an American cuisine, quote unquote. And, you know, I think it's really cool that, you know, the American palate has shifted the way that it has. And, you know, it's just, it's always fun to kind of go back to the root, um, you know, especially with the people creating these new products and bringing them into the marketplace. So, Anyway. Oh, yeah, I was gonna say so. I mean, like, you know, that's idea of like starting out very young with food equals love, just a way to provide for our family, a way for our family to get together. And I was like a joke that life is always ironic, because, you know, since the back days or the early days of being involved with food with family, I like you said, I end up working in a career in food, you know, eventually, right? So my first kind of marketing job, was with uh, Procter and Gamble, and at mm-hmm. the time, Procter and Gamble had uh, some food brands under their belt, which they don't have anymore. And they were uh, Pringles, you know, the potato, mm-hmm. of course, and uh, Imes and Yukonuba, the food, uh, the pet food brands, right? Mm-hmm. For dogs. Um, I was also very lucky too because when I worked for P and G, my first assignment uh, was actually abroad. So you can imagine being in your early 20s, alley, and they're like, hey, Jake, welcome to P&G. Hey, I have a question for you. Do you want to stay in Cincinnati or do you want us to move you to Singapore? Uh, right. to- I'm like, oh, it's tough. You know, I really love Ohio. Singapore. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was kind of like a, a huge pivotal moment in life because, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I moved abroad to Singapore. I worked for P&G. Yeah, with, um, you know, with Pringles in Japan and I'm Zinukanuba across Asia Pacific. Very cool. Um, and I ended up working in Asia for like a total of 10 years because after wow. P&G, I went to work for a Starbucks in mm-hmm. Hong Kong. And, you know, with Starbucks, you know, it's still involved in the obviously in the food and beverage world, but it's in the retail space. But right. honestly, Ali, I had what many people would imagine to be as like a dream job. So my my role at Starbucks was, you know, I was doing white space category innovation essentially like visiting all the Asia Pacific markets and mm-hmm. seeing what was on trend in those mm. markets and replicate those innovations Fun. from 
Kong headquarters. Yeah, so every time you saw like one of those BuzzFeed articles, like these are the crazy drinks that are coming out of Taiwan or Korea. That was you. Probably our team. Yeah. <laughs> so, but this is interesting, right? Because I, whenever I talk to sort of like the quote unquote like big CPG people, um, you know, a lot of them talk about just like the incredible training that they had. You know, every there's a whole lot of debate around like whether or not we should, you know, as early stage founders, bring in people from these big CPG companies to help us scale. And there's a debate on both sides, right? But the one thing that isn't really debated is that the training programs, the learnings, the moving around from, you know, like, you know, the different aspects of marketing, kind of the exposure that you get to brand management, you know, some really big fundamentals um, they are very good at as as a rule it seems to be so you know without telling me you know Procter and Gamble was amazing or it wasn't amazing like do you feel like it gave you sort of these like basic laws of physics when it came to marketing that maybe informed the way that you're running Phila now so the answer to that is yes and no. So what mm-hmm. I'll say is yes, because the fundamentals and the basics in just not marketing, but running a business was very obvious when I started PNG. I like to say that it was almost my MBA. Right. Now, what I didn't tell you, Ali, is that my undergrad, it was actually, an, I was an art student. So I had mm. nothing to do with business. You know, I was one of those uh, quirky kids with like the Kool-Aid dyed hair and, you know, painting stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah so- I can totally picture it. It's, yeah, it's cute. So me going into PNG day one, I was like, what in the world? And then, so it's almost like, yeah, I mean, you do need to have a bit of book smarts, but obviously a lot of it is, it's your chutzpah, right? It's mm-hmm. like what's inside of you as a leader. Like how, how hungry are you to learn? How hungry are you to absorb things and just kind of learn from your stakes and just seek leadership and seek, people's help, you know? Right. So that part was valuable. You know, that said, you know, I worked in CPG for quite a bit, but so then when you start your own business or your own brand, as you know, Allie, there's so many things that come out and punch you in the face, right? So even though like a lot of CPG marketers, like, you know, I'm going to start a business. Right. And they (laughs) start a business. Yeah. There are some things that kind of work out for you, like forecasting, financial modeling, all that mumbo jumbo. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I mean, you're pretty much in day one with the rest of the entrepreneurs. I mean, you're working with trying to kind of get retailers to carry you who Mm -hmm. have no idea who you are, trying to get offtake or velocity when customers don't know who you are. You know, they don't care. You came from P&G. They don't care. Right that you had a $5 million seat. I, we didn't have one, but I'm just saying, you know, they don't right, care. Right, right, of course. Yeah, right. And so there's a lot of these uh, really interesting challenges as an entrepreneur's face that no one is prepared for. Right. So I was kind of like super humbled that even though I came from these great corporate backgrounds, yeah. I had to learn from the scratch as well. And I had to get my butt kicked and how to kind of win and succeed in the, the food startup world. I do like, though, the idea, you know, I think you know this, we were talking about this before the show, and obviously most of the listeners know that, you know, I had a brick and mortar cooking school for um, six years before we started the sauces. And, you know, I didn't have a business background at all. I didn't even really know I was making a business. I just wanted to teach people how to cook, honestly. Very naive, pretty privileged, but true. And I very quickly learned that there are some just laws. They're just rules. You know, these are the fixed costs, things like that. These fixed costs shouldn't be more than X percent of total sales. And there were like, okay, so if this is like the, if this is like the framework for the house, then everything else, all those variable things are like, what color do I want to paint the walls? And where do I want to put the furniture? But they were like so foundational, And honestly, I still feel like that's a deficit for me. You know, I've been very fortunate to find people and advisors and, you know, investors and just nice people to help fill those gaps in. But I do think that people that come from your background, some of that infrastructure of like those business fundamentals or marketing fundamentals or brand building fundamentals Yes, of course, you have to learn where's the best place to catch the sun and what's the best color for, you know, people to be happy in the room and all that stuff. But like the basics, I'm a little bit jealous of. And I guess, I mean, do you 
agree or you're like, no, don't be jealous. It actually wasn't that helpful. <laughs> it was, I mean, like it was, I, I agree. It's, it was definitely very helpful. No doubt about that. Yeah. You know, like some of the exercises we had to do back in the corporate world, you know, it, we had that training, we had that learning process back then. So when we're asked to do it now, like put mm-hmm. together a deck, it's like, oh yeah, I know, dude. I right. Know how to, you know, I, know I didn't know what a deck was. <laughs> I, I, I'm still not quite sure I do. I had to learn PowerPoint <laughs> to like do this business. I didn't know how to do PowerPoint. I, I literally didn't. It's, I mean, Excel still makes me cry. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm interested in like some of those things too and how how you've leaned on them a little bit or what you've learned or what you're like, actually that made it really easy when I was working at a massive company, but this gets thrown out the window when you start your own, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, I think one of the easiest examples is, you know, when you're marketing for, you know, if you look at my time working on Pringles Japan, when I was mm-hmm. at p that business alone, people don't realize, I mean, that was like a business worth hundreds of million dollars a year, right? Yeah. For a brand and one of the largest markets in the world. So when marketing sends an email to an agency or to a retailer, mm, people they, answer like, it. Ask, like, oh my God, hi, Jacob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. so imagine like, you know, as a startup founder, you mm-hmm. know, selling, uh, you know, sauces, granola, um, kelp, seaweed, jerky. Yeah. We write an email to like a buyer at Sprouts, at Whole Foods, at Wegmans, and like no one replies, right? It's yep. just the normal thing. And then you, you go to a trade show and no one stops by. It's a normal thing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like putting a that I guess I don't know what the word is, but maybe it's like that arrogance of mm-hmm. kind of like, hey, I used to be, I used to do a lot of this cool stuff back in CPG. Yeah, being grounded, like, hey, now that you're starting your own thing, you know, no one else is going to make it happen for you except for yep. you. So yep. If no one replies to your email, if no one stops by your trade show booth, then it's the onus is up to you. To how do you make it better in the future, right? What have right. you learned, and what can you apply? Uh, from that mistake or that failure that can you help you succeed in the next iteration? Yep. No, I think that's really, I mean, it is the most humbling, it is the most humbling position to be in. And it's great because I think being humbled that way probably makes you just a much better leader and probably a much better partner and certainly, you know, a better founder. Um, But I will say that it is funny watching, you know, big brands that have recognition then enter into the CPG world and being sort of like, wait, we have to do an ad or like we have to do, you know, like they're just, there's this, it flips them on their head a little bit, you know, because they're used to people coming to them. Um, and this is very much a, you got to earn your little shelf space and no matter who you are, no matter, like you said, how much money you have backing you, if you're not making, you know, money in that little six inches of space that you've been given, it's not going to be there for long. Oh, a hundred percent, you know, yeah. and, and it's, um, maybe I'll just like continue the, the journey because like speaking yeah. the theme of, of humility, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, like all crazy entrepreneurs, you know, I came to that point in life and career. It's like, you know, I, do I want to continue doing this or did I really want to pursue that burning passion and idea in me, which is like to start my own food brand, right? Because I love food. I love brand building. I loved running a business. And I and wanted- so that was there. I mean, that that was there and it was like a little like spark. And and that is, is it, did it just get stoked during COVID? It, no, this was, a, I mean, here's a, this is like a, a really long story, but I mean, like I'll, I'll share with you, but yeah. It actually happened back in twenty um, like sixteen. So mm. this is the this is a thought I had in my mind, Ali. It's like you know I wanted to do this, but then is it worth leaving what I have here? Right, right. I'm, really, I'm in Asia. I have a really good job, and like it's, it's a great living. So for me, maybe with you as well, or some other entrepreneurs, it's it was kind of the idea of balancing a risk versus regret. So you know, it, the thing was that. If I leave my job, if I leave uh, this this area of the world, <clears throat> that's a big risk, you know. Then you know, I start my business, I fail, um, it's super embarrassing. I lose a lot of money, um, mm-hmm. and you know, that's that's kind of my humble pie, yeah. But then mm-hmm. for me, the regret is that I if I don't that. take the step, you know, if I don't do this, you know, down the road when I become older and I look back, I'm like, man, I wish I did that. 
uh, that part was scarier for me. So I decided to to kind of uh, take the risk. Yeah. And, um, I headed back to the U.S. because I was, I was stationed abroad, if you remember. Yeah. And that's when I started my first startup. So this is not my first startup, Allie. Got it. Great. Well, this is very <laughs> helpful for my listeners to hear. Okay. So 2016 was the first one. And I mean, just backing up, though, Jake, it, you know, uh, I really did. I started this podcast years ago to encourage people and help people and save people some time and money and give them access to maybe some people that they wouldn't necessarily get to hear talk about stuff. Um, And I do find myself sometimes being like a little bit more like, "Ah, it's really hard, everyone. You know, don't don't get into this lightly. You know, I'm very upfront about the money. Um, you know, is there anything that you, when you were measuring out the risk versus regret sort of like equation, was there anything where you were like, okay, but these three things need to be, I'm going to jump off this, you know, thing, diving board, but I need to have these three things in the pool so that I can feel like at least somewhat safe doing this. Like, were there any things that you just made sure that were in place before you took the risk? Or were you just like, you know what? F it. I'm out. So I think that's a really good question. So I think part of it was a leap of faith. You know, that said, when you talk about the risk, what I did for me is, I know, I didn't have like, you know, what are the three reasons or three backup plans like that? For me, it was almost like the idea of, so let's play this out. Like, let's think about what is the worst case scenario? Do you know what I mean? So then for me, right. it's like, you know, you move back, you start the business, um, it doesn't do well. And then you you go out of business. Okay, so that really sucks. So what's the worst case scenario? Then you just got to, you know, put on your tie and go apply to go other CPD. Yeah. Right. What if that doesn't work out? What are you going to do? Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll try maybe a, maybe a lower job or different career. Um, and is that going to be super bad? No, because, you know, you lived in Asia. I was born in Asia. I didn't come from money. So I know for a fact that probably 90% of the world has it worse than you have right now. Yeah. And then, so what if that doesn't work out? What are you going to do? Well, you know, the, the last thing is that, you know, my family is super loving. They're super supportive. And right. like, worst case scenario, I'll just live with my brother until yeah. I make ends meet. No, I love that. You, I mean, you kept <laughs> going. And sometimes we're scared to keep going. You know, we're scared yeah. to say like, well, what if that doesn't work out? And, and, and a lot of times, even now, you know, we're like, but the sales will come in. Right. But what if they don't? <laughs> you know, and, and the thing is, it's important to do that because that's the empowering part. You know, it's, it's like, it's not head in the sand. It's like, okay, I got a plan, you know? And, and if the plan is I sleep on my brother's couch for a year while I figure my stuff out, that's still a plan. Um, so did worst case scenario happen? No, no, it did not. Thankfully, <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you know, with, with most, um, I'd say with most entrepreneurs, uh, you know, all of us have that spirit that energy with us i mean we don't want the worst case scenario to happen but right and since the onus is up to us we obviously want to make it happen we yeah. want to make it work yeah so then yeah. you know depending on what we have in terms of tools and in terms of resources we we try to use what we have to make it work and so that's what we did uh for my first startup so um would you like to hear about my first startup i i very much would you know <laughs> i think what we should do though is i think we should take a quick break because i don't yep. want to interrupt you while you're talking about your first startup because it sure. might be even more helpful than this startup um so we'll take a quick break and then we'll come right back and hear all about it cool i'm chava perivan co-host of agave road trip on hrn here to talk about 818 tequila 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 
818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. In the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Lilia combines wood-fired seafood, handcrafted pasta, classic Italian cocktails, and warm hospitality. Since 2016, it's been celebrated as a neighborhood gathering place, bringing the best of Italy to New York City. Lilia is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverage bento box to power their digital front door, including their website, gift cards, event management, and more. BentoBox is a marketing and commerce platform built specifically for the hospitality industry. With BentoBox, get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. Visit getbento.com chef today to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. I'm back with Jake Delion, founder of Phila Manila. Okay, so we were talking about startup number one. It's 2016? 2016. And things didn't go quite according to plan A. <laughs> Maybe. Well, or well, did they? Eventually. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so when I went back to the U.S., because, you know, I had to move back from Asia to the U.S., to do this whole crazy entrepreneur thing. Um, so right. my, my idea was uh, at the time was to create kind of, you know, at, this is at the time too, Ellie, was to create the market's first clean label almond milk. Do you know what I mean? So back oh, then- Oh yeah, sure, of course. Almond milk was a rage. Almond or almond, depends on what part of the US you're from. I'm from Jersey, right. so I have to say almond. Almond, almond milk. Do you? That's so funny. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker and we say almond. Almond milk. And we're just across the river. <laughs> we're from South Jersey. It's a very different world compared to North Jersey. Play <laughs> that. Okay. So um, we decided to make kind of like craft artisan almond milk, right? So imagine like just water and sprouted almonds. Yeah. It's amazing uh, almond flavor and almond experience, which is so different than the rest. So our first business day of business was actually at our local farmers market here in New Jersey, right? Right. And it was kind of like. At um, <clears throat> day one opening, I was like, we were wondering who's going to buy our almond milk. And like, I kid you not, once people tried it, uh, you know, they we sold out all of our stock within 30 minutes. So, you know, just to stay, take, take a step back from that, Hallie, it's like, you know, I mentioned to you my, my training from the CPG world, you know, based on what I knew, I was able to bootstrap this thing for just 500 bucks. So right. with 500 bucks, you know, I, I just got the ingredients I needed, the materials I needed, you know, I didn't have to hire any consultants or branding. Mm -hmm. I just did it myself because I, I did this for about 10 years already. And were you thinking, did you, did, I mean, were you thinking at this point about, you know, packaging and shelf life and how this was going to actually scale at all? Or you just wanted to see if people liked it at the beginning? It was a ladder. My, so my thought was just for an MVP, a minimum viable product, mm -hmm. right? Got I just to get something out there, right? So I mm -hmm. wasn't obsessing over oh, is this the cutest glass bottle I could use? Like, no, I'm just going to get the cheapest thing on Amazon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to get some almonds from like, <laughs> you know, like uh, whatever, nuts.com. It's right. And get, get a nut milk bag from Amazon, just make it myself. Yep. And then, so that's what I did. So then with that $500, I would guess like pre-seed that I funded myself, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when I went to the farmer's market, we sold all the inventory. So we made like almost like $1,000 that day. So I made 500 right. bucks. So yep. I made money back and then more. And then what I did is I took the learnings from that day, like what people commented on the flavors or like what they thought about the packaging or the name. And then I just tweaked it for the next week, right? Because I did everything on my, my own like laptop. I made the labels on my laser printer mm -hmm. and everything was just like rapid iteration. Yeah. So the next week we made changes. People really accepted the changes. And then we made 1250. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it was kind of this gradual process mm -hmm. of iteration, improving, and also kind of like in consistently growing sales. Yeah. Just based on like what we learned from the previous round. Yeah. So <clears throat> one fateful day, like someone from Whole Foods stopped by is like, Oh my God, I love your stuff. You should kind of like do uh -huh. a demo. Uh, you should do a demo at our store and see what happens. And um, so I did a demo at the store and I kid you not. So I did the demos at the store. They had like a really cute, 
uh, kind of local booth where local entrepreneurs would like demo their products. Not for right. whole, like you would just demo it and then sell it from your own like square. Right. You know cool. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did that for a few uh, weeks and the staff really liked me at Whole Foods. Like I was, you know, super friendly. I was helping mm-hmm. them out. Uh, when, when things were quiet, I would help them stock the shelves. And then, so I remember, this is so fun, Allie. So one day I get a call and Deborah, she was one of the, the team leaders. She's like, oh my God, Jake, you got to go to Whole Foods like in two weeks and demo on this specific date. I'm like, why? Uh, John Mackey's coming. I'm like, what? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It's Google John Mackey, Jake. I'm like, okay, fine. And it's like, oh my God, it's the CEO of Whole Foods. So I show up and then I'm doing my demoing my almond milk. And then uh, <laughs> it's so funny. John Mackey shows up with like, um, like a posse. Right, of, like an entourage, right? Yeah. And like, you know, he's wearing a sweater and like, he looks like, he looks like Mr. Rogers, right? And everyone's yeah. wearing the men in black outfits. Yep. Um, and they're like, oh, act natural. Hey, consumer, would you like to try some almond milk? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and keep in mind, too, is like we were in the process of like registering at Whole Foods to get in their system back in the day, right? So right. Tried how, to- how, just question though, like how much shelf life did you have on this and didn't like, didn't it separate? And like, what, I mean, I've made almond milk for years. I can't even imagine. It sits in my fridge for two days and it's kind it- of... It did. So it was a it was a fresh almond milk, the product that we were you know we were pitching at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So the shelf life wasn't long because it was fresh. So obviously, right. once Whole Food accepted us, we had to find a way to <laughs> to right. to get it shelf ready, which I didn't right. know. But right. but the the fun story is that when John Mackey tried stopped by, he tried it. It's like, oh my god, this stuff is good. Right. Like, Thank you, John. And he's like, do you sell it here? I'm like, no, no, not yet. It's like, why? What's the problem? It's like, well, we, we did a, you know, reply for the process. It's taking a while. Mm-hmm. He goes, um, oh, let me see what I can do about it. And then oh he, my gosh. he looks back at his entourage. Someone takes a note. I kid you not, Allie, the next day I get my first PO from Whole Foods. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. That's a great story. But um, I mean, like to, to kind of talk about what we were talking about before, it's like, oh, cool. I have my PO, but I, you know, I, I learned it's like, wait a minute, I actually can't sell this product because yep. it's, it's unpasteurized. Yep, yep. I know we had something very similar where like you, you're like, yay. And then very quickly you're like, oh, no. <laughs> so, um, so we had to like, within a few months, we had to figure out how to get our product from there to, you know, shelf ready, commercialization right. ready. I'm not going to bore you the details. Yeah. Allie. Essentially, we end up going with um, like an HPP, a cold right. press process. That's what we do for our sauces. Yeah, yeah but it was um, it was definitely a different product at the end result because you know, yeah. we had to acidify it. It was very different than the original concept. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, so we launched the the product, and I forgot to tell you the actually the name of the brand was called Origin Almond. You know, okay. The uh, like the the source of the almond. You know, what I mean, Origin. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, just to sum it up, I mean, we had actually a really good run. So after our launch into Whole Foods, you know, we expanded distribution uh, with a lot of independents. Like, uh, and there's a great regional chain in the Northeast called Moms Organics. And then mm-hmm. we even got distribution with Walmart and about 100 stores. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah, so crazy. Really, yeah. Really well. And then, um, you know, I'll kind of, like, fast forward. So we started that and we started going into retail with Origin Almond in 2017. Yeah. Like, about a year after our, our mm-hmm. first farmer's market stays right so from 2017 to 2020 we were chugging along we were doing okay we raised some money um include from Kraft Heinz as well we were part of their incubator mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and then like I would say March of 2020 was our highest revenue month to date for the company like right. we were doing really well and you know like with with most companies that's uh that was kind of like or I would say with most companies with with the planet earth that was the month where <laughs> yeah <laughs> downhill things things shifted and right (laughs) exactly right around then yeah the planet like a lot of our revenue was tied to in-store traffic so with you know ours was like a refrigerated functional beverage yeah so imagine folks going to whole foods going to the hot bar and grabbing one of our five dollar almond drinks right that was was a crowd so once traffic went away once the the lockdowns hit i mean yeah they were looking for hand sanitizer and toilet paper and yeah rice yeah you know, so we definitely did not do well. I'd say over the course of the next few weeks, our revenues dropped eighty percent, no problem. But it was it was bad. But let me let me say this as well, Ali. It's like looking back, I'm super thankful for three yeah. reasons. Like number one, we were a reefer business, like you know, with Haven's Kitchen. Yep. We had a good grasp on inventory, so we didn't lose any money on inventory at all. So all the inventory we had sold off at the distributor, at the co-packer, all the way to the stores. 
Uh, number two, like I had friends and founders that had businesses 20 times larger than my own that mm-hmm. lost everything overnight. Yeah. yeah. And number three, it's like the whole, the whole world is panicking. Everyone's sick. I didn't get sick. My family didn't get sick. My friends didn't get sick. So yeah. if anything, it was definitely a terrible moment, but you just have to look back at gratitude. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's hard to to be like, oh, man, my business, when the entire world is suffering at the same time. Yeah. No, I mean, I had I had a very similar situation. So I I hear you. Yeah. So I yeah. mean, it puts things in perspective. And I mean, that was kind of like essentially the end of Origin Almond. And did you want to kind of hear about the, <laughs> the dawn of Philomanilla? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing, because clearly, you know, I'm also, it's very annoying when people are going through it and it's annoying to myself when I'm going through it, but I do kind of feel like things are a little bit meant to be. And when one thing doesn't work, it's, you know, I, I mentioned that my father passed away a few months ago and, you know, he said a bunch of really wise things to me. But one of the things that he used to say is like, if you're, if like you have to like push the puzzle piece in and it's not just like gliding in, like it doesn't fit. You can kid yourself and be like, no, it's totally goes here, you know, but if there's, if it, if it doesn't flow, it's probably not ever really going to, and not to say that, you know, origin almond wasn't flowing, but to say that, there is usually a reason why something, if something doesn't work when it's pressure tested, you know, of course there are all these externalities, but at the end of the day, something else is going to work. And my guess is that, you know, I mean, I really am now, I want to hear the story of Phil and Manila, but my guess is that there were some learnings as in Maybe we don't want to do refrigerated. Maybe we want to have something that helps people cook because we're in lockdown now for the next couple of years and they're looking for flavor. You know, all of the things that kind of happened after that kind of set you up. You know, I I, I feel that way about my cooking school. It had to close and it was really sad, but it kind of like catapulted the, the packaged good company in a way that I would never have gotten here without that. And, you know... I'm, my guess is that you're going to say something along those lines, but I'll let you tell me the story. No, you're, you're hundred percent right, Allie. I mean, that was definitely a, you know, a pivotal moment or kind of an inflection point. So you're wondering now what, right? Do mm-hmm. we, do we wait out the storm? Do we try to raise money to kind of keep origin almond afloat or do we do something else? Yeah. And then, so, you know, for me, as like, maybe this is a learning opportunity, right? So maybe down the path, it would have been so difficult to make Originomin work. And who knows what was going to happen to the world at that moment, right? No one knows mm-hmm. knew what was going to happen in April or May or even like six months down the road yep. in 2020. So I, I felt like, I'll tell you what happened. So this is the interesting thing that happened to me when I was making that, when, when I was in that decision process. So what happened was that I saw an article during the height of the lockdowns, the height of the pandemic around April or May where the article was talking about in some areas of the U.S., you know, 20% of the healthcare workforce on the front lines of COVID were Filipino. Mm. And this was kind of like, oh, weird. This is a, for most Filipino families, I'm not sure if you know, it's kind of an inside joke that we have at least six or seven cousins or uncles who are like nurses. Nurses, yeah. It's just just like the thing, right? So if you're not a nurse, it's like, is everything okay? Right. Um, but you know, this, it, I mean, maybe laughing that, but it's it kind of like opened up my, my brain to yeah. see, this is really interesting. Like what is going on with my people? Because, you know, I grew up as a New Jersey kid and then, you know, and then, so I, I really didn't know much about the Filipino American community kind mm-hmm. of embarrassingly, but, and then, so I did research and during the research and the lockdowns, you know, it turns out that I'd like to say that we are, you know, we're a thing, you know, so yeah. If you look at the numbers, Ali, it's like basically Filipino Americans are the second largest Asian American group in the U.S., uh, number one in 11 states, including California. But in, this is a fun fast fact, too. In California, Tagalog, which is our national language, mm-hmm. is the third most spoken language outside of English and Spanish. Wow. But so then if I was thinking to myself, if this is true, and I also have my CPG hat on, mm-hmm. why is it when I go to, you know, the Wegmans, the Publix, the Kroger's, the Walmarts, the Targets of the world, there's actually almost zero representation right. of the food on the shelf. It just seems so weird. 
I felt like, you know, you had to go to the Asian grocery store and mm-hmm. go to that dusty section and like, you know, brush off these packets of MSG stuff and say, mm-hmm. this is healthy. And it, it just felt kind of weird, especially if you saw what was happening around us in pop culture, because you do a simple search on Google Trends, Filipino food has been growing year on year for the past five years in terms of interest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you had culinary influencers like the late great Anthony Bourdain, Andrew yeah. Sermon, and David Chang saying that Filipino food is going to be like the next huge thing, right? You, you know, so I, I just have to tell you, as a total aside, I, I graduated from my master's program in 2016, and someone did like a really beautiful like thesis on Filipino food and how, and they, it was all about sort of the growth and the interest and the cross-cultural and how it hits on these different flavor notes from these different things. And it's, it was, it was, it was this beautiful video project that went along with it. So I actually am familiar with the cuisine. And also I love the way that you, you took your CPG hat and you're like, there's this, there's this group of people that are interested in eating this food on top of this group of people that are like curious about this food now. And yet the grocery store doesn't have anything. Okay. Here's a little spot for me. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, there's growing awareness in the cuisine, like you mentioned. And even if you look at what's happening in pop culture, I mean, you have all these great influencers and celebrities and artists uh, like Olivia Rodrigo, Sweetie, Doja Cat. I mean, they're all Filipino and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, Mars. And so I was thinking to myself, like, wait a minute, if we're good at kind of pattern matching, like yeah. where Filipino food and culture and cuisine was at now is the same moment where like Korean food and culture was like a few years ago, right? Almost at like kind of the start yep. of the giant wave of kind of like what's what's becoming popular in the US. So then that kind of thought, became super obsessive in my mind. It's like, I got to do this. Like if someone yeah. wanted to make the first Filipino American food brand, I feel like I, I, I kind of have, I can do it. You know, I have the CPG background. I have the experience from the first startup and I guess I'm Filipino as well. So I, I, <laughs> I bosses. they call it founder product fit. And <laughs> it is one of those funny things where it, when it makes sense, it just makes so much sense. And it kind of goes back to that puzzle piece fitting in. Like we all were, and, and it's interesting too. And I wonder if you agree, like, I feel like so much of the time I know I am the right person to build this particular brand, you know, in this particular way because of my particular experience. And I feel that you know, a lot of the companies out there, like it's so perfect. Like the people that start it, it makes sense that they start it. And it, it follows like you had, you are a Venn diagram where these three or five different things come together. And that sweet spot is this product for you. And it makes, it's like flow, you know? And it's interesting to me because without that, when you can see it, when it's not that, for founders, or you can see it when people are like running companies and they don't feel that, or it's not aligned. And there's like almost something that isn't quite clicking or working. And it's that much harder. You know, it's, it's a hard enough job when it, when you're compelled to do it because it, it, it almost is you in a way. Um, but you know, when people, that's like when we always talk about sort of like some people in a room trying to innovate quote unquote, and looking at trends, they just, they, they, that that's the reason why it doesn't work 99% of the time because they're, they're just, it's not connected to who they are, you know? So it's, it's really beautiful. And a hundred percent. It's, it's one of the, I think I would say it's probably the key driving factor, you know, behind the brand and its founding is that it was so interconnected with with who I was. I mean, not mm-hmm. just like the business and whatever, but just as who I am kind of growing up and my culture and my yeah. family, you know, what makes me super excited. Um, yeah. I might steal your comparison to a Venn diagram. I'll put it somewhere in my investor deck. <laughs> yeah. With like a little picture of you in the middle and then a little picture of like the fill in the Nilla jar. I like but, that. Um, but I was like, so, you know, during the lockdowns, like I got to do something. So I, I'm going to mm-hmm. do this. So uh, this is the story I love to tell. So then I used that. That was a time where we got our stimmies, our stimulus mm-hmm. checks. 
And I'm like, I'm going to use my stimulus check to make a prototype. So then, you know, in true immigrant hustle, and it's like, <laughs> I used that 1200 bucks. I bought a couple of jars from online. Um, I remember I was an art student, so I did the labels mm-hmm. myself. Um, you know, I did a couple of formulation and I went to the lab to verify a few things myself. And that was exactly like a thousand bucks. Yeah. To make these yeah. prototypes. Amazing. And, and then from there, it's like I had these prototypes and I started to sell them into retail. I started to to pitch investors. And that was essentially like what I like to joke is kind of like the immigrant version of, of pre, pre-revenue pre funding. Was, was <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but did you take any of the word? Did you what did you have to um, like the or, or like the origin almond company? Did that have other investors or no? Oh, so the only other investor in Origin Almond was Kraft Heinz. And then, you know, during, I was in close touch with their team and they're super supportive of pivoting to, right. I mean, that's okay. more how. So they're actually still on our cap table and they're, they're very happy. So. Yeah, no, great. That makes a lot of sense for them. I mean, it's almost a better fit in a way for them. Um, but I was just wondering, like, logistically and legally, did you have to get their buy-in to change? Like, I remember my operating agreement, it says something along the lines of, and if you decide to go make widgets tomorrow, you know, everyone has the right to get their money back. And I remember being like, well, why would I do that? But this is an actual really good example of why you might do that. And I'm, I was just wondering, you know, it might be helpful for people out there if they do decide to make a pivot and they do have investors you know, you just had to basically make a call and say, hey, this isn't working. This is what I'm doing now. You still in kind of question? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, it was pretty straightforward for us since we only yeah. had our cap table. I mean, the rest of it was was all my bootstrap money. Uh, right. And, right. Um, but, you know, once you had those prototypes, you know, I was able to leverage the the buyers and the contacts ahead from the first startup. Yep. And, you know, this is, I gave them a few months. It took me a few months to develop the prototypes. And around the fall of 2020, I approached like some of the, oh, one of our key buyers. And I, I won't tell them, I promise them I won't tell them the name or the, the Yeah, story. of course, of course. But I said, hey, remember me? I used to have those weird almond drinks. Now I have mm-hmm. these uh, Filipino sauces and here's why you should carry Philip Manila. And I kid you not, Ali, you know, I sent him this. Within 30 minutes, he replies back and goes, Jake, we've been waiting for someone to do this for years. We'll take all three views. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Retailers know there's like, there's something missing in their set. And they're they're just baffled by no one would ever tackle this kind of concept or this kind of category before. I mean, just like since then, it's been a roller coaster of a journey. I mean, like, I'll just sum up some of the exciting traction we've had. since. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, in that chain, we became the number one selling new Asian product. We then went to sell on Amazon FBA in spring of 2021. What's FBA? Oh, sorry, Fulfillment by Amazon. Uh, Okay, got it. So Amazon fulfilled our products. And once we launched there, three out of our three SKUs became number one on three separate Amazon lists. Wow. So we were the best selling adobo sauce. We were the best selling peanut sauce. And we were the best selling sofrito sauce. Amazon. We were outselling Thai Kitchen, outselling Goya. Mm -hmm. And this is all with zero marketing spending because I refuse to give Jeff money. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I hear you. Yep. And, you know, from Jeff and Mark, both of them don't get (laughs) Mark also, I don't give him much. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and, and the, the other side story I want to share too is that you know, as a founder, you're just so curious, like who is buying your product? Mm-hmm. Because when I first came up with the brand, I thought our consumers would be people like me. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're first or second generation Asian American immigrants who are familiar with the cuisine. So on Amazon, I emailed 50 of our consumers, and I didn't know who they were. And I emailed them, and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm Jake. I'm not stalking you. I'm just the founder. Mm-hmm. Um, who are you and why are you buying my $13, $13 jar of sauce? Yeah. And a, a nine out of the 10 replies culminated into a story similar to this. It was like, hey, Jake, uh, you know, thanks for reaching out. Um, no, I'm not Filipino. I'm actually white. I'm Hispanic or I'm black. You know, I'm from Kentucky. I'm from Nevada. I'm from California. Uh, but I used to date someone who's Filipino. I used to work with someone who's Filipino. I used to go to school with someone who's Filipino. And they made the most amazing the flavors. Mm. Yeah. And then so what happened is that they saw your products on Amazon and they sent me the link and like, yo, you remember that adobo I made for you a few weeks ago? You could do it yourself now. And that just got me so excited. And that's how wow. I discovered your That's so a key great. Insight, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Keep going. It is. The key insight was that even though Filipinos are not our core purchaser, 
they are our core cheerleader. So they're mm. the ones who are evangelizing and get so excited that finally there's a modern brand that represents them and their culture that they tell all their friends, uh, their family, and their their acquaintances. And then that's what's generating a lot of our trial and generating a lot of our sales. Is this I love that. Yeah. I love the difference between a core purchaser and a core cheerleader. Oh, totally. And, yeah. yeah, and that they're not necessarily the same. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, so since then, it's it's been kind of like a whirlwind of distribution and sales. So, I mean, like from there, we launched into Whole Foods Mid-Atlantic in fall mm-hmm. of last year. Uh, we launched into Fresh Time Market uh, just a few weeks ago. We'll be going national with uh, World Market. They have about 220 stores um, mm. this month. And we have a couple of uh, biggies uh, that are right. not announced yet that are going to happen um, in the second half of this year. But essentially, you know, we subscribe to Spins Alley. Spins is the, the industry sales data, as you know. Yeah. And, you know, within a few months, we we're able to prove a couple of interesting things. Number one is that, you know, Filipino is the fastest growing subcategory in Asian, right? So when I say fastest growing, we're talking about 147%. The nearest right. group is Chinese at around 23%. So we're growing by like a factor of five. Right. Number two is that I was able to prove that Philip Manila is actually behind all of that growth. So we are essentially driving the entire category growth in itself. Mm-hmm. And the last thing is I get super excited because I'm, I, you know, I, I'm so proud and I share with our investors and my family is that we're actually already the number one Filipino American food brand in the United States. Yeah, uh, with, that's awesome. With sauces within yeah. less than a year of launch. So, you know, we started the journey with savory sauces and condiments. You know, that's what we want to do is kind mm-hmm. of set up this iconic, uh, looking at iconic savory dishes and replicating that with instant sauces. Yeah, but, right. you know, the vision here is to represent the next generation of Filipino American flavors. We recently just launched a new separate line of coconut-based breads. And we debuted those at Expo West, and it was it was definitely a success. I mean, we had folks saying that it was the best product they tried at Expo West. We won a next seat for best new pantry staple for our ube purple yam jam. Amazing. So now we already have seven SKUs, and then uh, we'll be going national with the jams as well with a few retailers this year. And uh, we are just kind of like full-on investing in innovation. Yep. I love the idea of kind of tapping into these really iconic homegrown Filipino flavors and kind of reimagining them into products that would appease and like make everyone in the U.S. excited about. Yeah. And number two, it's just like, we just want to get the word out. We just want to get that awareness and that spotlight on Filipino cuisine and finally have it recognized as a legit, delicious, amazing flavor that it is. Yeah. I mean, it certainly sounds like you're doing that. Um, I guess, you know, one of the questions I have about sales is like, you know, in terms of, I mean, I know we all have to be in 85 places at one time, but it seems like you have a very strong Amazon business. It seems like you're very focused on building out, you know, your retail footprint and, you know, that takes time and, you know, relationships with buyers. I'm curious about direct to consumer sales also, because it seems like there's that there. Is it, do you have like a, in your mind again, is it like, we want to be 80% this, 20% this, you know, that type of thing, or are you just kind of taking opportunities as they come? I mean, you do have resources to, to meet out and time. So how are you kind of building out your sort of sales picture a little bit? That's a really good question, Ellie. I, I think a similar question was asked by uh, the folks at Nosh and BevNet, obviously, you know who they are. Um, And it was kind of this idea on direct to consumer. You know, that said, you know, I believe, and this is my personal opinion, that at least for my category, um, that most of our sales will come through retail naturally, right? So if you imagine the consumer, it's, uh, you know, we'll imagine her as a she, say she's going to the store. She wants to buy a jar of manila sauce because she wants to make dinner for her family. She's going to get a pound of meat, some vegetables, uh, some drinks, and that's her her evening shopping list, yeah? Mm-hmm. So that's how most people shop. You know, it takes a lot of effort, um, and honestly, these days, with the advertising costs online, it takes mm-hmm. a lot of resources to get that same person to buy $70 worth of sauce and condiments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't have much of a D2C business, no. but again, we're refrigerated, so we, I mean, I talk about this all the time, Yeah. So, I mean, like for us, it's, I feel like retail is probably the more um, lower hanging fruit for now. Mm-hmm. I mean, direct-to-consumer is still very important. We're not investing too much into it just because I believe the growth uh, for Phila Manila 
if we really want to reach as many folks as we can, probably right. through retail. You know, yeah. that said, I mean, there's still obviously an opportunity for direct to consumer, but you know, Ali, you know, and uh, folks probably listening to this, you know, the the cost and the metrics of going yep. to direct to consumer is very different now than it was two years ago. You know, yeah, and it's about hit- to get even worse. Exactly. So yeah. I, I'm not kind of like going against the grain. I'm, I'm just following the same plan that a lot of direct-to-consumer brands are doing right now, which is expanding right. in detail. Yeah. And Amazon, um, I mean, it's good for you. Do you think of it as a sales or an awareness or, you know, a search engine of sorts? Like, you know, how, how I mean, I don't need to know the numbers exactly, but, you know, f- just some sales channels are less profitable than others and some are really, you know, people say Costco a lot of time. Yeah. Top line can be huge, but you know, at the end of the day, it's not a huge bottom line, um, which is fine because it's so awareness building and it's so brand validating and all that. So how do you think about Amazon? So Amazon for us, there's a couple of strategic reasons. I mean, obviously it's always nice to have a really strong uh, channel that generates top line revenue. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. important. Uh, Number two, we have to face the fact that a lot of our consumers already shop on Amazon. So Thing yeah. is that if you're not there, you're missing out on that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, certainly three, if you're shelf stable. Yeah. Exactly. And number I three, say it's because like, I'm not there. <laughs> 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 she says a little defensively, but also, you know, maybe, yeah. Um, yeah. Number yeah. three, it's, it's the learning platform as well. So we learn, you know, we've been testing out Amazon uh, AdWords and ads. We see which AdWords work really well. And we can apply that for Google, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number two, we get we hear and see some of the consumer feedback or the shopper feedbacks. And then we apply that to our formulation, you know, we kind of see where our top selling flavors are and kind of figure out what is the right configuration or kind of set up when you go into retail. So there's a lot of good ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, that said, I'm definitely not going to, Amazon is definitely not very strong for the bottom line. So I probably wouldn't invest too much into it, but for strategic reasons, we love keeping Amazon in the mix. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, I, I think, I'm, you know, I always, I never title the episodes until after the, um, until after the interview, obviously, because it's always, it kind of always like rises to the top a little bit, like what this particular person that I'm interviewing, the, the theme. Um, but the theme for you is like constant learning and iteration. It seems like every step of the way you are, you are, putting something out there, you are getting feedback, you're tweaking it, you're putting it out, you're getting more feedback, you're tweaking it, you're putting it out. Like using Amazon as a learning opportunity to see what what sells best, what the feedback is, to reach out to those 50 people, which I'm sure you continue to do, you know, all of that makes it so valuable as opposed to just being on there and putting some ads and keywords and you know, it's, it's very intentional, um, which I think is really cool. And, and I think the lesson for all of us is, you know, for me, it might not be Amazon, but wherever you are and whatever channels you do put into, you know, we were just having like a YouTube discussion. Like, we're not just going to throw some stuff up on YouTube. We're going to use YouTube to learn as much as we can about what's interesting and what, what hooks people into the brand and what creates the flywheel. And, you know, who's looking for us and what else are they searching? All of those things. It's like the more intentional that we can be, I think the the further our dollars will stretch. And also the more we'll just keep being one step ahead. You know, it, we won't be as reactive. We'll just be, we'll be building the next thing before, before the consumer even knows that they need it. Oh, a hundred percent. agree with you, Ali. I think we're in the yeah. same there. Yeah, no, I think it's really cool. Um, okay, last couple of minutes. Advice. You are a great pitcher, clearly. You win a lot of things. I know that's partly your winning personality, but, you know, I'd love, A, I'd love for uh, pitch slam that? advice. What do you mean by that, Allie? I'm just joking. I'm trying to fish your compliments. Can you <laughs> <say that? laughs> no, I mean, like, that's what I meant by at the top of the thing, being like, I can kind of feel you. Like, you've got... You're just, you're like a big smile and I'm sure you're not happy all the time, but you do have like really positive energy and even just like your email tone of voice is like smiley. Um, 
you know, which is a great quality to have, but it's not the only reason. Obviously the product is amazing too, clearly, if it's winning these awards, but pitching is hard. And, you know, I love my product and I think I have a pretty nice personality too. I wouldn't give myself an A plus on pitching. Um, So I'd love just tips, you know, whether it's like standing up in front of a room of people or, you know, putting a pitch deck in front of an investor or putting a sales deck in front of a buyer, what are some tips that you can give to people who are a couple steps behind you? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I would say my advice follows to what you were just talking about, the theme of iteration. So, you know, when I first started, you know, my pitch deck and my pitch was very different than what it is today. You know, Mm -hmm. today it's definitely had a lot of iterations. It's definitely more polished. So I remember my first pitch and looking back, it was very clunky. You know, you didn't get a lot of that excitement or passion behind it. Um, It was very businessy, very jargonish, right? So then Mm. what I did is that after I showed it to investors, my friends and family, you kind of see their feedback, like what areas did they react towards and what areas did they really resonate with and what parts did they kind of tone out with? Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. with that feedback, you kind of have to look at, see like what are the areas of the pitch where I can improve and what areas can I really emphasize? And it was kind of that concept and that kind of discipline, which made me kind of evolve where we are today with, with kind of the, the Philip the Philomanilla uh, pitch as it is now. I mean, so a lot of this learning, it was never perfect, but you know, the fact that you do it over and over again, and that you're just so so obsessed with making it better. Yeah. uh, Not just your product, not just your business, but even your pitch. I mean, it should tie up into every aspect of your business. Yeah. And that goes back to sort of what keeps coming up about you. Like you're leaning into, you're really paying attention to where people are leaning in And then you're zooming that part. And then when people are leaning out, you're figuring out why. And my guess is, is that a lot of us, when we pitch, we either get so nervous or we get in our head or we're just like on such a mission that we don't do as much listening as maybe we should, or as much sort of like scanning to see what's going on with the responses that maybe we should. And I think that's, that's a really, really great piece of advice. Um, Okay. Last thing. You to yourself, whether it's, you know, for 2016 or, you know, 2020, if you were listening to this podcast on, you know, we always joke, it's like not how I built this, but like, how the hell am I going to build this? Like, that's kind of what the, the theme of this is. Like, how, what, what would be the one thing that you would be like, this is the one thing that I wish someone had told me, or I wish I could just like shout on a loudspeaker to everyone in the emerging brand space? Yeah, I mean, the, the advice I would give to that question, and even the same advice I would give to budding entrepreneurs now is, is tap into your network. You know, there are so many questions that you don't know as an entrepreneur or starting a food business or a beverage business. I mean, why not just ask the folks who've already done it? You know, they've been through all that pain. They know what mistakes to make and see what you can learn from them, right, without going through it. So, I mean, even if you don't have that network, just cold message someone on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. You know, I had entrepreneurs that cold messaged me, and I will help them out because I know I've been to their yep. shoes before, and I'd rather I'd rather take 10 minutes out of my day than them lose $20,000 in a mistake yep. I made, you know, yep. five years ago. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so I agree. So, wrong with yeah. asking. I always say the worst thing that you could do by asking is is – is having a no, right? And that's almost, mm-hmm. it's also the same answer by not asking. You'd also have a no. Right. <laughs> the thing you can get from asking is that you would get the answer that you need. So there's yeah. no harm in asking. You just have to be kind of, be humble. Just say, yeah. like, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you just help me out? Yeah. I mean, and do it tactfully as well. Like do all the research first. It's just, yes. you know, I wouldn't go to Allie and say, Hey Allie, I want to start a refrigerated sauce business. Can you tell me what to do from like step one to step 20? Thanks. Right. right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I do think it's similar, you know, someone from, I I think it was a Kroger, you know, conversation and he was like, you got to come knowing the stuff that we write on our website. Exactly. You know, like if, if you can find it on the website, it's not a question. If you can find it in an interview that you've done somewhere, it's not a question. <laughs> you, we're assuming that you you already know those things, and now now what? 
you know? Yeah. When is Kroger? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, um, it was with LaShawn who used to do oh, right, the, yes. um, diversity, you know, yeah. yeah, the diversity program there, but it was, it was, he just put it very, he put it well. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, say thank you after, I mean, I'm always happy. Like I obviously get a lot of DMS cause of this program and, um, you know, you, you become friends with the people who follow up and say thanks and, you know, um, send you a picture of them on the shelf or, you know, offer to introduce you to someone back, you know, it's, um, you learn quickly, I think, who's, who's reciprocal. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the right thing to do. And people are super nice in this industry, you know. I yeah. mean, so if there's a chance for them to help you out in the future, they'll be more than happy. But yep. the ongoing joke I always say is that I always help them out because they might be my future boss. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. If, if, it, if this doesn't work and then that doesn't work and then you're sleeping on your brother's couch. Exactly. You never know, Allie. It's like you never know. You never know. It be like um, next, I don't know, GT Dave. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I would know, be like the future marketing person. Oh, that's amazing. Um, all right, Jake, I, I'm so happy that we met in italics, um, and that, you know, uh, we got to do this. Are you still in New Jersey? Yeah, we're still in South Jersey. Just outside. Amazing. So yeah. we're going to make a plan to like hang in our, like, we'll cook together, um, in yeah. our test kitchen. We'll have a lot of fun. And now that I know that you like the gingery miso, we can maybe do something kind of fun. Um, and um, people can find your products, as we said, on Amazon directly from you. You're in, you said, Mid-Atlantic, Whole Foods. You're going to be in a bunch more stores. You're in Mom's, I believe, or was that the original one? Fresh Not Time. Uh, just visit. We have a store locator yeah. page on the website, and they'll yeah. tell you the, the latest stores that we're in. Yes, constantly updating. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on, and um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ali. I had a blast. Thank you. Yay. Armin, as always, thank you for engineering. Um, it's I am clearly the least technological person around, and I would not be. I know people who do their own podcasts, and I'm like, what? So anyway, I remain very grateful to you, Armin, and to Heritage Radio Network for hosting the show. Everyone listening, um, I really do, you know, I do read your DMs. I appreciate your support. Um, I love when you, you know, suggest um, guests. And most of all, really, the, the please do share this with other founders and other people working on these emerging brands. There are enough cookies for all of us. We don't have to hoard information or knowledge. You know, it's, we all win um, when we share. So um, I appreciate everyone listening and I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.